Welcome to episode 22 of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. This week, we're talking about underrated movies from the 1990s. Since I selected the six movies, I guess it must be what I feel are six underrated movies of the 1990s. Joining me for this episode, once again, second appearance from Portland, Oregon, Hope Bell. I mean, well, legally, that's not my name. I haven't changed it yet, but... <laughs> oh, yeah. I, 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 do you go by your maiden name? No, I go, I don't know. It's complicated. Okay. I go by Hope Bell, but it's not okay. literally my name. I was I was trying really hard not to say Hope Larson because I thought, okay, well, oh. you've been married for some time now. and uh, Both work. So, I kind yeah. of forget. I forget who knows me by what last name now. So uh, you're just saying, like, uh, looking outside here in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's very snowy and very foggy, and I guess it's not that way in Portland, Oregon. It's uh, a, a balmy plus six, and the leaves are still changing colors. Well, you're still in film autumn and we're we're starting to live in winter here. So yeah. All right. So underrated nineties. You actually had mentioned this as an idea for a category, and then I went and I put something together based on it. Yeah. So what what led you to want to talk about underrated movies from the nineteen nineties? I just like underrated movies in general. I feel like I like talking about them because you don't often get as many opportunities. So when people also have the same interest of a movie, it's fun to find that niche little thing that you have in common. And you told me uh, before we started recording here that you hadn't seen any of these movies. Not before. one. Nope. <laughs> well, I guess they were underrated. Yes. Well, I mean, I was, I'm also young, so I was barely born in the 90s. I remember that fascination, I, I guess, with, well, historically with the 60s, I was interested, but systematically mm -hmm. the 1970s, uh, I, I was in the 1970s for about six months, but I wasn't really that aware of movies or anything. So I, I remember I became very fascinated with, it's almost like that that decade you were born in or, mm -hmm. or you weren't able to fully process, like... Mm -hmm. Or if you did, they were just kind of like kid movies or that, that kind of thing. So Very much like a nostalgic more than you actually experienced it full on, right? My bias is my favorite decade for film is the 70s. My second favorite is the 90s because I was, again, a teenager for the better part of the 90s. So I was mm -hmm. watching more and more movies. So I every year I thought all these movies that came out would be the greatest thing ever. Sometimes it's interesting to revisit them and go, okay, like it brings it down to earth. Sometimes I'm mm -hmm. like, yeah, I was right. I was right when I was yeah. years old and I thought this was wonderful. So, so it'll be interesting because I've, uh, I've seen these, all of these movies a, a few times, uh, some more than others. Uh, and for you to uh, talk about it as uh, kind of the very first uh, time seeing all six and kind of giving them equal weight, I guess. I should mention just before I forget that there uh, will likely be spoilers for the six movies we talk about. And, and likely uh, profanity. There may be some profanity, some coarse language in uh, uh, in this episode. As, I feel as, like if you watched any of those movies, you have to be comfortable with profanity. <laughs> there is a lot of swearing in these six there's movies, a lot. Jason. There's a lot. <laughs> I loved it. What, one one in particular, and I'll talk a little bit about the writer. He, he loved his F word a lot, and particularly at that time, uh, he was responsible for two movies that are among the uh, the record for the most F words in a in a single film. So, so the movies that we're going to be reviewing are uh, requested in alphabetical order, not chronological order. So. We're starting off with 1999's Cookie's Fortune. Then we're uh, directed by uh, Robert Altman. Again, these these names are like filmmaking gods to me. 
maybe not to other people. Then we're going to move to uh, Oliver Stone's Heaven and Earth from 1993, the third movie in his Vietnam trilogy. Then we're going to take a look at Hoffa, directed by one Danny DeVito. And I'm not sure people would naturally pair Danny DeVito and this particular material together. Uh, so nope. Good to throw this in. It was in. interesting. It was good. Probably the, the least known director of, of the bunch, John Dahl, uh, did this movie in uh, 1994 called The Last Seduction. And then we're going to uh, move on to uh, another well-known comedic actor who wrote and directed and starred in a movie called Mr. Saturday Night from 1992. Billy Crystal is his name. We talked about uh, as far as his voice. Working. We did. I was thinking of that right when I started it. Because yeah. I hear his voiceover. I thought of Calcifer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like to bridge the episodes whenever possible. Yeah. And that's probably <laughs> the, uh, the only bridge we have. Yeah, I think that's as close as we'll get. <laughs> Uh, and then we're going to end off Robert Benton in his 1994 movie uh, starring uh, Paul Newman called Nobody's Fool. In a lot of Paul Newman movies lately, I, I recently did a show with Kurt Fitzpatrick, another one of my regulars who lives in the U.S., and, and we talked about, did a bit of a tribute show to uh, Paul Newman. And oh, He's so great. And so Nobody's Fool from uh, 1994. So we have two movies from 94, two from uh, 92, one from 93, and one from 99. Welcome to Holly Springs, Mississippi. Ah, nice out here today, isn't it? A quiet little town. Cookie, I thought I might make some catfish enchiladas. No! Where nothing ever happens. Jumai! Jumai! But when the town's nuttiest woman gets whacked... There's blood everywhere, red, like a coral that the fishers have found. Hold on just a minute. Discovering who done it... What's going on? They broke in the door and they got one of her guns. She was shot. ...is going to be murder. What? What? Back up. Back up. From acclaimed filmmaker Robert Altman. I cleaned every one of them guns, so my prints must have been on all of them. Anybody see cleaner? I did. You did not. Director of The Player, Shortcuts, and MASH. Lester, who are all these people? Glenn Close, Julianne Moore, Liv Tyler, Chris O'Donnell, Charles S. Dutton, and Academy Award winner Patricia Neal. He's innocent. And what makes you so sure of that? Because I fished with him. They're all about to discover. This paper here says that she almost died giving birth. Well, that's impossible because she's never even gotten any. That where there's a will, what will? there's a way. I'm a fugitive from justice, so arrest me. To get away with murder. What are you eating? Nothing. Cookie's Fortune, a Robert Altman film. I've talked on this program a few times about a director I really love uh, named Robert Altman. He, he died a few years ago, and he just made one classic movie after another. And uh, the 90s were kind of a resurgence for him. He was very big in the 70s. Uh, the 80s weren't as great for him, but then in the early 90s, he made this movie called The Player, followed by another movie called Shortcuts. And then it, every movie for the rest of the decade, good or bad, people were paying attention to. And sort of at the tail end of the uh, 1990s, he released this independent movie called Cookie's Fortune. And it's set during Easter weekend in a small town called Holly Springs. 
Springs, Mississippi. The town residents are peaceful, kind folk, with the exception of Camille Dixon, who's a very, very pushy theater director. Sound like anybody you know? Oh, I loved her. She's played by um, the great actor Glenn Close. And her. it's also about her shy younger sister, Cora, played by another great actress uh, named Julianne Moore. And, and there's this estranged daughter, Emma, played by Liv Tyler, who's just returned to town. And on the heels of her latest play, Camille is shocked to discover that her aunt, Jewel May Cookie, or Cut, has committed suicide. Terrified, uh, terrified at the thought of how this will tarnish the family name, she eats the suicide note to make it look like a burglary. Uh, and this leads to the police looking at one main suspect, Willis Richland, who happens to be uh, Cookie's best friend. Uh, also, coincidentally, happens to be a black man who gets accused of a crime he didn't commit. Although the rest of the town's Willis didn't commit the crime, an outside investigator isn't so sure. As Easter Sunday and opening night of the play arrive, the truth comes out, revealing more secrets than anyone could have possibly imagined. So that's a setup to Cookie's fortune here. What did you think about it? I loved it. It was This was the funniest of the movies, for sure. Shockingly, the one with the suicide was the most lighthearted. Like, it, it's dark. It has dark moments, but actually Altman's known as having like dealing comedically with really dark material, but this is a really light film. Mm-hmm. This is Robert Altman light. You're right. And the suicide and its buildup is, is is really interesting too. It was um, so sweet. You really fall for her as a person. I love that you kind of got to know her. She's played by Patricia Neal. Uh, this was a late in her in her career, but she basically is seeing the world change and she's missing her husband and she wants to be with her husband again. And that, mm-hmm. that leads to it. And the way it's it's handled, there's this kind of this this sadness to her, but also this life and this joy. Beautifully yeah. captured in that performance. Yeah, it was wonderful. Um, I, I, I liked I liked all of the characters. I loved all the characters. Yep. The performances are strong. A few other names I want to to mention in here. Chris O'Donnell, uh, his well, he's he's done some TV stuff, uh, but he's not as well known. He his big break, he was in a movie called Scent of a Woman. Okay, uh, I know him from NCIS. I've never watched that show. I just see him on commercials all the time on every channel, and so it took me a minute. But I was like, oh, I've seen that face a hundred thousand times. He's and uh, my husband Adam walked in and immediately saw the TV and said, "Oh, that guy's from NCIS." Yeah, that's it. Specifically, LA, he says to me. He just chimed in in the background. Sorry. Yeah, he had a little bit of a, for a while, a movie career. I think a lot of it was based on this uh, this movie with Pacino. Uh, and then he was he would appear in the odd thing here or there. This was towards the end of his time as being known as a film actor and before okay. he moved to television. This really dorky junior cop who he's in love with Liv Tyler's character. Uh, every time they meet each other, they just start making out. Oh my god! Immediately, yeah. it doesn't matter who's there or and, where they are. And, and like they're in the police station, and they go off. For, for quickies. The reason that uh, Emma Duvall, like uh, Liv Tyler, she, out of protest, she goes in and she, she sits in the jail too uh, with Willis because she's so uh, annoyed that he's been accused of a, a crime that he would have never committed. And so they have a lot of alone time together. <laughs> and then Charles S. Dutton's really good in that too, uh, playing Willis. Like he, he kind he's of knows. so funny. He has these, it's very subtle. Like he kind of smiles or reacts, but it's, it's not kind of a big, a big thing. He just um, rolls over over and I can see in his head, he says, oh, you crazy kids. <laughs> Another actor, um, very well known in the 70s, a little bit more. Uh, some people might know him from the Superman movies, the first wave of Superman.
Superman movies, but uh, Ned Beatty, he plays uh, the police officer who's obsessed with fishing. Right. And that's all he ever talks about. And the reason that he knows that Willis is innocent of the crime, he says, well, I've been fishing with a man. Yeah, I've been fishing with him. And that gets repeated over and over again. Really charming moment there. Uh, I guess probably the, I don't know how, how you feel about this. Maybe the, not not badly acted, but like kind of the most off-putting character is this one played by Lyle Lovett. He's a guy who, he's a, a fishmonger, I guess. And oh yeah, ew. He made me yeah, very he, uncomfortable. Stocks, pretty much stocks live Tyler's character. Yeah. Yeah. Lovett appeared in several Robert Altman movies in the 90s and he was usually playing this guy in the background. Sometimes it was like this police officer or this kind of thing who was a, or this baker in uh, Shortcuts. Usually kind of uh, an oddball character here. But okay. it, it felt watching it in 2020 like... That did not age well. It does not. No, it was not a good joke still. Just not like telling her that she better have good lighting so that she doesn't have to change in the dark. Ooh, uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. The other part that I don't know if it was meant to be sad, but it, it's kind of sad and creepy is when, when the Easter dinner is happening. Oh, we, yeah. We see this like this train car, which he's arranged for Liv Tyler to live in. And, and he's prepared some sort of like Easter dinner and A romantic <laughs> Easter off. dinner. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think the, the movie is is really in the hands of uh, Glenn Close oh and Julianne God. Moore. They stole and it. it. I'm maybe of the unpopular opinion that actually I think Julianne Moore was a notch better. Yeah, that's uh, she. Her yeah. ending was very good. It is like everything. Mm -hmm. You have to pay attention to all the scenes where, like, her sister tramples on her all the oh, time. Yeah. Let her have an opinion. Casts her as kind of the lead in this in this uh, biblical play that they're putting on at the church, but is is constantly you know giving her sister these notes. Her sister is you know several minutes behind in most things that are happening in the movie. Yeah. There, there definitely is some delay there, but how everything that Close says to her comes back to haunt Close at the end is, is really satisfying. Yeah, yeah, it was such a good little twist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The knife cut deep. I, I, I loved Glenn Close, though. Her ending was just so iconic. It I was laughing so hard. It was yeah. amazing. She starts to recite her own play. I mean, this is, again, mm -hmm. this is a community theater trope, which I think is, is closer to the truth than we would like, where mm -hmm. there are people who will, you know, write in direct these plays every year and have total control to do whatever they want. And in this case, um, yeah, she just happens to be just kind of this, this really miserable, miserable person who has that old South idea of the, the image of the family. And uh, yeah. um, it's not Christian to commit suicide. And so then her, her entire cover-up is uh, is interesting. And, it, yeah, there's a little bit of physical humor in there, uh, lots of verbal humor, and the, the – the town and the characters are just so so enjoyable. It's a you really it, love all of them. Some for some reason there's like there's a reason to like every single character. Yeah, I, I feel like it was kind of a nice escape from the world we're in right now. Yes. Yeah. On the whole, yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like we're both pretty positive on this. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say about Cookie's Fortune? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I would recommend that people check it out if you can. Bye. 
I will say, yeah, so my system that I'm weird in my rating, I had four categories, and one of them is recommendability. This is number one. I, I think this might be an easier sell of the, yeah. the six, like, compared to this one doesn't have as many F words as you were alluding to in the introduction. So, yeah, um, it's probably lighthearted. Probably watch this one with the family yeah. uh, a bit more, you know, than uh, than a couple of the others we're about to talk about. But, uh, yeah. yeah, really enjoy uh Cookie's Fortune. And again, I always like to mention Altman's style with his actors was very improvisational. Okay, cool. They have the script. The script written by a woman named Anne Rapp. They did two movies together and also an episode of this TV show he was involved in. And they would have the script and he would have these group scenes and he would film them about three times over and just let the actors run through the scene and just keep the scene going. And That's so cool. It wasn't, you know, as written. But and then he'd go to the editing room and he just picked the like the best takes. The, there weren't large, large scenes. The scene in the jail towards the end is quite a few people, but he still employed that style here. Uh, the other thing I read about is there. Of course, we do get to see this this church play. Mm -hmm. <laughs> very, very violent and <laughs> super violent and sexual yeah. almost. Yeah, and it's all about like. Like it's you know what happens if you commit adultery and all and all of these things are themes are in there and like the entire town is coming out to see this kids and all yeah and I I, I guess uh, Altman contacted a some sort of a theater company or community theater company and asked if he could film their play and then he used all of the staging from that for for the staging for this play uh, within the movie oh, which cool. is really funny and entertaining on, onto itself so. yeah I love it yeah so big recommendation for Cookies Fortune check. From Oliver Stone, director of Platoon and born on the 4th of July, comes the third film in an extraordinary trilogy. True story of one woman's journey to freedom. My family lived in the village of Gila, in the shadow of the mountain, in the time before the war. I remember working beside my mother in the field. Each grain of rice, a symbol of life never wasted. When the soldiers came, I fought to keep my village and my family from being torn apart. We are the soldiers of liberation! Help us win this war, and you get to keep your property and everything else you love! In the face of fear, in the midst of betrayal, I struggle to remain strong. As I watch my world change forever, I remember my father's compassion. Right is only the goodness you carry in your heart. Love for your ancestors, for your family. Wrong is all that comes between you and the love. I met a man whose kindness made me forget the past. This is mom's eighth dog. She has the eight ugliest dogs in the United States. <laughs> he wanted me to be his wife, to take me to his home in America. But in America, I was forced to fight once again. You told me two years we agreed that one. No, 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 no. To make a home for my children and help my husband find his peace. <laughs> Through it all, 
I have found strength in my father's wisdom to let go of the past and forgive, to hold on to love at all costs, and to never surrender my freedom. This is the war I have fought. This is the victory I have won. Joan Chandler, Tommy Lee Jones, Academy Award winner Hang Noor, and introducing Hepti Lee as Lei Hayslip. Peace is not the end of war. Between a man and a woman. Between heaven and earth. Cards on the table, we're now discussing my favorite movie of the six movies that we're talking about. It's a film called Heaven and Earth. When I was, again, that that formative age as a moviegoer in the uh, 90s, my favorite filmmaker was Oliver Stone, who made very tough political films. And he made three really brutal films about the Vietnam War. The first, he won Best Picture for Platoon in 1986. At 1989, uh, Born on the Fourth of July, which is one of, if not Tom Cruise's best performance on film and then for this third one uh, the one that got the least amount of attention in it was the year of Schindler's List Schindler's List was kind of the movie of how it it got lost I think in in the mix there but Heaven and Earth instead of being from an American soldier's point of view he 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 met a uh, a woman named Lely who had grown up in Vietnam during the Vietnam War and had written a couple books about her life experience. And so we see the Vietnam War from the perspective of A, a woman, and B, uh, a woman who is Vietnamese as opposed to an American uh, perspective. The nice thing about some of the movies we're talking about, Cookie's Fortune was also one of them. Like the plot is driven by women. And again, right, we're still fighting for that right now. And, yeah. and the movie is what, uh, you know, 27 years old, right? So. So th- this was this is quite a good thing. It perhaps has its moments of sentimentality, but it also is very hard to watch. There's a torture scene. There's a very uh, graphic rape scene. There's abusive relationships and just the violence that this poor woman went through her entire life. We sort of see what her village in Vietnam was like before the Vietnam War, and it looks like paradise. Yeah, it really does look like so paradise. beautiful. And we watch that village get destroyed, and even like in the later parts of the film when she goes back with her family to Vietnam she sees how damaged that village still is even though they have worked their way back to it being a functional society again still lasting repercussions big time forever and it's just a different take on war Oliver Stone's a Vietnam veteran but he's very anti-war because of his his experiences there the movie is centered on a woman who had never acted before uh, named Heath Quigley she never acted before no, this she oh had my god she went she went with her friend and lined up in san jose california because they were looking all over stone wanted and somebody who was actually Vietnamese to play the role and looking for the right person, not a movie star or something like That's that. That's good. Perfect. And she just went along with her friend. She didn't really want to go, but her friend kind of pushed her into auditioning. She got the role. Uh, unfortunately, I kind of thought there'd be kind of more from her. This was the, the major role. Uh, tragically, she died of cancer in her, her 40s. So she's... Oh, no. no. But she plays uh, Lely from a young girl to a middle-aged woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and each note feels very 
authentic. Like this is such a good performance. I, I don't know how the Academy did not nominate her because it was- She should have been nominated for a million awards. She was fantastic. This was also my favorite movie of these six. Yeah. I, yeah, I, by far. I thought, I, I, was, I was worried how you would respond to it, and but I, I'm- oh, It was so I'm good. A couple other actors who are a little bit more prominent to mention. Her parents are played by Joan Chen, who used to get a lot more work, but she's she's a fabulous actor. And her father is Heng S. Noor. Uh, he's a gentleman who, in a similar type of way, uh, he's actually a doctor. He won an Academy Award in 1984 for a movie called The Killing Fields about uh, Cambodia. And yeah. he has a really, really tragic arc for, for his character, as well as this father, uh, Lely, was his favorite child. He had several mm -hmm. children. And how, how that, how he sees where her life goes, and he's very saddened by it. Mm -hmm. The biggest name, biggest movie star in this movie would be Tommy Lee Jones, who is an American soldier who falls in love with Lely and then marries her takes her from an out of wedlock pregnancy and they go to the States and have uh, what seems like a, a really good solid situation for her becomes a nightmare when she gets to the U.S. and not at all what he said it would be. No, and he's dealing with post-traumatic stress from his time in Vietnam. He has no money and it's just a constant battle and he's suicidal and potentially homicidal as well. Mm -hmm. Apparently that section of it is covering two or three relationships in her life. Oh, okay. One man in, in the actual thing. Stone kind of condensed it into one character, I think, for time, because it already was, I think, about a two and a half hour movie. But that doesn't take anything away from uh, the power of those scenes. So it's just, it seems like things are bad and they get worse. And then when you think they're going to be better, they get even worse for her. And it just, it's a survivor story and everything that she had to do to get through the war, the after effects of the war, and then become quite successful as a businesswoman herself. Yeah, um, that's what I read because uh, I was reading up about this afterwards because I just thought it was so interesting. Lately is still alive. Lately okay. is still alive. And so I think it's a really interesting story and I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it. What, what did you connect to with Heaven and Earth? I don't know, like just the entire women's struggle and how she struggled just solely based on being an unwed woman in Vietnam. I don't, it, I don't know. Just everything about the, the female aspect of it was really spoke to me. Watching her get raped was really hard, but but it's real. Too. I mean, it's yeah. Stone, he uses black and white photography. At this time, his uh, photographer, it's my favorite cinematographer, Robert Richardson. They haven't worked together in many years, but one of the, for the movies of this particular time, what was happening in the present would be in color, but then there would be these flashbacks uh, in, in black and white, and and, and we, we see that a lot. Mm -hmm. Almost any time she's about to to meet a man, and if there's a something that's sexual about it, we see a flashback to that rape. And it seemed like the what what Stone presents is to survive in the war in Saigon, women had to be prostitutes essentially. Yeah, and she resists this as much as she can. Her sister gets deep into prostitution but she she has no income and she has this this kid she's trying to take care of and is presented with that at points and mm -hmm. and it's 
like being re-victimized all over again. Yeah. And she has no other choice almost. Well, she feels like she has no choice. Mm -hmm. She probably doesn't. No, no, unfortunately. So a few other things about it. it it's very heavy into Buddhism. Leili and her family are, are, are Buddhist. And we, we see that philosophy throughout is, and is part, almost part of her survival. Mm -hmm. that this, this forgiveness, as hard as it is, this forgiveness that she has for uh, the men who have victimized her, for everybody in, involved with the Vietnam War comes across beautifully. It's uh, so wonderful. Yeah, they do a great depiction of it. I like that she keeps her house in America even. You see the inside of her house has touches to it mm -hmm. that have the Vietnamese culture into it. There was a wall separator that looked very authentically Vietnamese, which I thought was really good that she kept her culture and it was really powerful. And it's a struggle too because the Tommy Lee Jones character and his family are Catholic. Yeah. Right? And so there's points where really uh, you know, shaming her and saying like, get get rid of all of this this stuff, and you're you're American now. And being so, in America for the last however many months in 2020, I can attest to the fact that is very common sounding. <laughs> that rings yeah. true still, unfortunately, to this day. It was interesting seeing those scenes as well. I mean, they, they're almost a lighter touch in the kind of in the second act act there when when she yeah. comes. US and she goes to the grocery store and that was so I loved that scene it was so interesting to watch her culture shock just everything's there when she's been starving for so long and there's a thing where she's she's taking those big bags of rice and yeah. and, and he said that's no it'll, it'll be open all day like all the time so you don't need to to buy all the rice that's in here so yeah but you also sort of see the, the the drawback to that is the way that his family treats her oh yeah she's not eating enough the, the sister's quite a large woman and come on it like, just shows that americans are very selfish people in comparison i think i, I feel like that's often the depiction right mm -hmm. you take as much as you can if it's in front of you whereas Lei was i'll only take what i need and i feel like that's a pretty fair depiction yes kind of yeah. a first world culture in general yeah. yeah a couple actors to mention in there kind of extended cameo debbie reynolds who one generation would know her as one thing and another would know her as the mother of princess leia herself carrie fisher she plays Tommy. Lee Jones' mother, and you know, seemingly a very uh, kind, welcoming person, but there's a kind of a bit of a facade and a darker side to to, uh, to her character. The other actor, Conchata Farrell. Uh, she's so oh, great. R.I.P. Sister, and yeah, and and she ended up. She was on the TV show Two and a Half Men, I believe, after this, and she she recently passed away as well. So yeah, uh, shout out to her. And then one other sort of recognizable name from some of the Tim Burton movies and some other films along the way, a, a guy named Jeffrey Jones. He's a priest, kind of a one scene, even 30 second type role, but he's a priest who conspires to let Tommy Lee Jones kid, essentially kidnap his kids. So there's a little bit of a comment. Right. I, I a think part. Stone, Oliver Stone uh, grew up Catholic. I think he's a lapsed Catholic. And so I think he was kind of projecting some of that into the story here and really trying to promote Catholic people as being a bit more corrupt into the Buddhist uh, mm. philosophy because he, he became a Buddhist, I think, part of his time in Southeast Asia and when he cool. came back. So yeah. That's super cool. But it definitely it, comes through. Stone said this is his favorite movie of all the movies he's made. Mm -hmm. And it, it really, didn't get it got zero Oscar nominations it did oddly enough it won a um, 
a Golden Globe Award for its beautiful music score. Oh yeah, the music was wonderful. Kitaro uh, did the music for the movie, and that, oddly enough, for the Golden Globes, had beat out John Williams for Schindler's List. So that was one of the rare times Schindler's List lost anything that that year. But then he didn't get an Oscar nomination for the music for, for the Academy Awards. I thought the photography—it's just a beautiful looking movie, as horrifying as everything is. Yeah, I guess like some of the scenes, I would warn people uh, that there are some pretty harsh scenes in this film before going in just just as a heads up the torture but, includes gore as well as some uh some bug torture yes uh, <laughs> which like that wasn't it wasn't that graphic i don't like bugs and i could get through it so yeah i didn't i didn't watch all of the snake part i'm not gonna lie it did turn and look away for that scene yeah i i, I guess i'd forgotten how harsh those things are early on <laughs> yeah wow it was intense i'd remembered the rape scene for sure as as being like really really difficult early on in the film but yeah that torture scene before before that happens is is really difficult and it it tries to convey the difficulty between the north vietnamese south vietnamese the civil war and how you, you couldn't satisfy either side and then the americans come in and then you look like you're sympathetic to americans if you if you line up with them and it was so uh, difficult to find a place to fit in for the Vietnamese people in general again i i, I guess i probably should say something because that was the challenge every time to say something as a bit of a weakness. Oh, um, right. Does it have a weakness? I don't know. It was really long. I mean, that um, was it. I like long uh, movies, yeah, though. For people, yeah, the, the length might be a problem. I, I think, you know, Tommy Lee Jones, his approach to her early on is, yeah, I, we, we outed, like, Lyle Lovett's character as being a bit of a stalker. Like, he, he goes to the her place and says, refuses to leave, really. Yeah, I didn't like that he wouldn't leave when she asked her to multiple times. And there's a little bit of a trying to be a white savior thing, I think, in there. Totally, yeah. Yeah, but it, it doesn't work out. We see that he's, you know, he's so he's so troubled that he couldn't he couldn't save himself, never mind Lely and, 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 and the children. I also thought maybe it's true, but there's probably a bit more detail in the books about like the, the move from being this really sweet guy to basically being a villain in the American portion of the film. I, I thought yeah. there was a little bit of a leap there to sort of one scene, one scene suddenly he becomes just very abusive and very difficult. And I, I, yeah. I just see a little bit more of a transition in there. So yeah, I agree. For you, it's, it would be the length. Yeah. I mean, the length didn't bother me. That just might be a turnoff for some people. No, I like long movies. And so that's never been a problem. Yeah. A couple of the movies <laughs> talking about are, are on the longer side for sure. So. All right. Very good. Sounds like uh Two thumbs up here for uh, very much. It she scored high on Christmas Day, 20th Century Fox proudly presents a Danny DeVito film. Brothers, we are gonna march, we are gonna hold together, and we are gonna get what we came down here for. He was capable of anything. All I'm saying is, there's a lot more there for us. It's right, it's just, it's do us, and it's possible. He wasn't afraid of anyone. He said, why shouldn't he take you out in the alley and beat you until you beg for death? Tell him he gives me a cup of coffee, I'll answer his questions. That's why everyone was afraid of him. The Justice Department has plenty on you, Mr. Hoffa. You don't impress me. I don't need $300 million, and my brother elected president whop your ass. He didn't want law. He wanted justice. I'm gonna do what I gotta do. Get the union back. There was a me. I'm gonna do what I gotta do. The question is, what has been lost and what has been gained? 
20th Century Fox presents a Danny DeVito film. Someday this man's gonna be president of the United States. Jack Nicholson. Hey, you gonna organize the cops? Hey, that's easy. Someday I'm gonna organize the crooks. Danny DeVito. You could uh, cross over and testify for the government. You want me to give up Jimmy Hoffa? <laughs> Hoffa. I've talked more than once on this program about Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, which is, it's been long movies, uh, is a three and a half hour movie, which I absolutely love. I've watched it three times and it does deal with uh, potentially uh, the, the gentleman who may have been part of the the murder and disappearance of, of Hoffa. And it's okay. been the great mysteries of the 20th century is what happened to Hoffa. And one of the things I've been kind of saying, as much as I'm glad that people re- recognized Al Pacino for playing Hoffa. Uh, the movie that we're about to review, 1992's Hoffa, to me is always at the back of my mind because I think Jack Nicholson, who's a guy who you always recognize, but I feel he totally disappears into playing Hoffa. And I think he gives a much better performance. Chino did in The Irishman. Okay. And this is a this movie's much more about Hoffa and a, a biopic of Hoffa kind of through uh, kind of these major years where he became the president of the Teamsters Union. And it does deal with his mob ties and it's it's set on kind of fictionally uh, uh, this, this idea of what could have happened to lead to his disappearance. So he's, he spends most of the movie with uh, his friend Bobby Cairo, who's Danny DeVito, uh, who also directs the film, as we mentioned. And they're waiting and waiting and waiting for this meeting with uh, this this mafia boss played by Armando Sante because things have uh, kind of gone sideways. And uh, we follow Hoffa from from his early days into when he faces up against Robert Kennedy, who who, uh, who wants to label him as, as being a communist and uh, maybe cracking down on his ties to organized crime, to a situation where Hoffa does end up in prison for a while, all the way up to the events leading up to this version of how he died, which I, I know is made up. It's not, uh, I think the, the version in The Irishman is a little bit more accurate, but for me, Nicholson's performance and the look of the film and the, the feel of it is so strong. I kind of wish that Nicholson had been up for best actor for this. This same year is another movie called A Few Good Men. Okay. Nicholson got a supporting actor nomination for that. And the thought was that he would he would be nominated for both, but he was one of the people that was snubbed. And I, I think that's kind of too bad. I, I always think when I'm going to revisit it that maybe I'll, I'll see more flaws or I'll have more problems with that performance. But any, any flaws with the movie are not flaws with Nicholson's performance. And so that's why I kind of wanted to bring this movie forward and uh, let more people know about it. But this is definitely... Definitely one of the ones where we're talking about the F word. Yes, uh, many a times. I expected that, though, based on the cast. <laughs> I knew I knew what I was signing up for when I hit play. Yeah, if you don't know five minutes in, you're, you're going to... Yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, uh, about a week after the movie, and I remember, remember, I don't know why I remember this clearly, about a week after the movie was released, Danny DeVito hosted Saturday Night Live. Okay. He was in this sketch where there were a bunch of people that were that were talking about movies, and, and this couple was saying, oh, we went to see Hoffa. Oh, it, it's very good, but they swear way too much. And then they had, did this close-up of DeVito kind of looking like, oh, feeling guilty that he was responsible for that. 
so, so he, was, he was aware of that for sure. The, the writer of the film is David Mamet, who I've talked about a few times. The show, he, he also had the screenplay of his Pulitzer Prize winning play, uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, which I've reviewed. And that came out the same year, 1992. And that had the most F words per screen time of any movie. And then this one has to be up there in the top. It must be. Because the, the, so that's a warning. If, if you can't take a lot of swearing, this movie is going to be up for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that was just kind of a choice is that, you know, working class guys. It, uh, it fit. It sounded right. I mean, my husband worked in construction uh, mm -hmm. for six years. Yep. There's a lot of F-bombs. Everybody yeah. just, that's, that's how they talk. It was pretty accurate. So. And Mammoth's a Chicago based work kind of blue collar working class guy. Uh, uh, when uh, Kurt uh, Fitzpatrick and I uh, reviewed a movie called Phil Spector that Mammoth uh, wrote wrote the TV movie and directed it and Kurt had been an extra on that film oh, cool. and talked about watching Mammoth and how he would work with the crew a lot and he was a lot more like kind of comfortable with the blue collar folk I think I, I think that's what he was kind of tapping into with uh with the film I, but I just think it's jarring if you're not if you're not prepared yes so, yeah. <laughs> this is another one it seems to be a theme on my podcast beautiful horrible movies yeah there, there's a certain beauty to the the music score by oh, it was, uh, yeah. the photography is gorgeous yet it, it is very dark I mean there's there's a an explosion early in the film where this guy gets burnt to a crisp yeah then we see him in in his hospital bed and he he's just burnt he's all black and you can barely understand him and he's mm. basically uh this priest is trying to get his last confession and he tells him to <laughs> off yeah yeah <laughs> that was the best and, and then that story gets told over and over and over again throughout the film yeah yeah robert brodsky plays uh play plays that character and uh he's, he's a guy who would appear in a lot of movies he'd be a face that some people would recognize but it's it's very short he's only in the film uh for, for a little bit of time there because he gets exploded he, he does he does yeah oh burning alive that's like number one of ways i don't want to die yeah no yeah sounds terrible well, and in some ways like they're going in to burn the place like they're they're blowing mm -hmm. uh, you know so there's a certain risk a certain danger if you're yep. gonna be. yeah so i mean what, what what did you what did you think of devito's direction i loved it i thought it was really really good this was probably my second favorite it ranked number two yeah i like dark heavy movies i'm a big fan of mobster movies so i really liked it yeah it's another one that's a bit longer i think for some folks but i, I again I, I i i don't mind it i like a lot of the characters that we see and the actors that were that were brought into the film. Yeah, the um, acting was fantastic. JT Walsh, he's a guy who again died too young and he actually appeared in A Few Good Men and Hoffa in the same year, so both with Nicholson. And he plays this guy who uh, ends up being the president of the Teamsters and kind of screws over Hoffa uh, kind of later in the film. And uh, just, just seeing his presence in the movie, I, you know, he, he also appears in the last seduction. Uh, mm -hmm. very that we're going to be talking <gasps> He about. was. Oh yeah. my gosh. I didn't even, that just clicked. He, yep. he shows up in a lot of movies uh, mm -hmm. in the 90s in particular, 80s and 90s. Uh, just a welcome presence. John C. Riley, who's known a little bit more now as a comedic actor. Just hearing his voice kind of takes you out of it for a second because yeah. he's so funny. But and, and it's funny, at the time, like it wasn't until later on that he, he was working with Will Ferrell in comedies. He, he did serious movie, serious movie, serious movie. He was and always like, very good character but he would be uh he was known as a dramatic actor and until a certain point and now more people would know him as as, as being funny and a, another actor I, I really like he 
he doesn't work as much to my knowledge uh he's in my favorite movie uh jfk uh frank whaley frank whaley is this trucker who's when, when we're kind of seen uh, kind of the initial sequence in the film where the the whole thing's a flashback of of Hoffa's life in the present moment he's a uh, this truck driver who's stuck all day in this uh truck stop because his rig has broken down and he can't get anybody to help him and that actor is he's another face that's a welcome presence mm-hmm. he's his villains uh I've, I've known him to play uh some some creepy characters in some horror movies as well but it's just kind of nice to see him uh in it as well so really really good cast fantastic cast yeah what would you say is kind of the weaknesses of Hoffa I mean as far as Jack Nicholson mobster movies go it wouldn't be my number one because I'm just impartial to the departed <laughs> but I don't know i don't know if there were any i don't really have negative things to say about most of these movies i really enjoyed all of them it's good that's good so yeah i i would agree with you the departed is a better movie uh, it's, it's kind of a different it's just a different vibe right i really liked that this was just a different untold story that i don't think i would have heard about without this movie personally like mm-hmm. i don't really i didn't know who hoffa was i'm not sure how i missed that but <laughs> yeah it was really good it's kind of an underdog story that you didn't expect and the ending was wild. I just yeah. dropped my jaw and was like, fuck, oh my God, what the fuck just happened? It, what? It, oh, it, it just, uh, I remember so good. It, I saw it in theaters and I, I'm not even sure I want to spoil it for people. I, I think, you yeah, know, let's not. Out. But yeah, I, I was just like, what? Yeah, what pardon me. Yeah, I was, it, it is, it is very abrupt. But it, it it all makes sense when you yeah. take a second to think about it. But yeah. it yeah, it it's it's tough to see. Credits are rolling, okay? That's okay. That's it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. There we go. It um and I mean to be fair, I it is an interpretation. Exactly. Uh, and it is overall like I, I think that that whole bit is, is fictional, but Mammoth used it really well as a story device. Totally. Uh, and then just again the cinematography and, and DeVito's direction. I love those those transitions mm-hmm. from present into the past. They were and really good. Just a close up into something and it was kind of seamless. Like there's these shots where we see kind of an older Danny DeVito and within the same frame it goes into the past. Yeah, you used Beautiful. to see him from the back and yeah. it's almost his shadow in the window or something, and then it will just change the, yeah. the foreground. Yeah, it's really good. I really like that too. Yeah. It's just the just seamless. So I, I, I do kind of wish that I, I don't know if because it was dark and because it was there were a lot of F words and I guess it wasn't, you know, that happy a story. I guess that's maybe why it didn't get the attention. Ninety two yeah. was a good year too. I, I I have to say, like we're talking about two movies in here from nineteen ninety two. It wasn't shut out. It did have two Oscar nominations for photography and for makeup but but that was it and i just thought the 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 big snub was nicholson because nicholson sometimes gets accused i'm a big jack nicholson fan but mm-hmm. people say yeah but you can always tell it's jack nicholson yeah and that's a little bit of his his approach to acting is like that where he says yeah about you know 80 percent of it is is me and then the rest of it's the story and and then i kind of adapt to it but here i think he gets hoffa's voice down he gets the look down there's no sort of movie star winking at the camera that happens. No, he doesn't have his regular Jack Nicholson man mannerisms. No, and so, so I, I think because of that, they, they should have given that a little bit more consideration. But mm-hmm. I don't know. He was up for a Golden Globe for it. And, and so he was in the mix. But it just uh, it, it was a year where just they, they went in a different direction. And, and, and that's fine, I guess. But I again, I, I just want people to check it out for Nicholson's performance. If you're a Nicholson fan, if you're 
Danny DeVito fan. Like he's. This he's is probably. I love this movie of Danny DeVito. It's like shockingly one of my favorites of him. He's a little bit kind of in uh, to use the, the the gangster film analogy, like the the old Joe Pesci type of a role. Like he's yeah. kind of a muscle type of a character, but at the same time, you know, it was it was a good role for him. But as a director, this was a real stretch because he his his niche was bl- uh, like really really dark comedies like Romance in the Stone and uh, War of the Roses. If you haven't seen War of the Roses, Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. Check that out. Throw Mama from the Train. Like the, these are very funny, but but much much darker than Devito himself presents. He okay. presents kind of a joyful, positive. Yeah. So it was it was good to see him direct something that was serious and that was a little bit more of an epic film. So yeah, I think that that was a little bit underrated as well. And yeah, big fan of Hoffa. Again, I, I just want to mention some things that I would say that I'm I thought were maybe it may have not been necessary. I kind of got the point, but they had that that cute kid. There was that. Oh big, yeah, what was the point of that? If he reunited with his mom and and they're in this this riot and uh, the mother kind of confronts him that you know is this necessary and can this be avoided? And then at least this funeral scene where it looks like the mother has died, mm-hmm. but then we're revealed it's revealed that no, she's fine and she then sees sees Hoffa with the kid. Yeah, I thought that was just unnecessarily melodramatic. I mean, I I guess it was to point out the fact that these actions had consequences, but I think that could have been pointed out in a different way. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's a good reason that Mamet and, and DeVito wanted it in there. And I also thought, like, there was, I, again, a really picky thing. There was this one car explosion, which I thought was just a, a bit too exaggerated, a bit over the top. Like, when the very moment when uh, JT Walsh is sort of saying, oh, yeah, I'd like to see Hoffa come after me, and then his car explodes right there uh, it's so so cheesy yeah to time that perfectly wouldn't uh, but again these are minor points i i think it's it's quite quite a good film maybe points wise i think it's I'm, there'll be a, a lot it'll be closer to heaven and earth i'd say between the two i heaven and earth is a better film overall i agree but i, I would encourage people if they can handle this material again that'll be kind of the theme if you can handle this material stick out hoffa you still a lawyer frank yeah still a self-serving bitch friend needs advice i'll set it up for you husband and wife do a one-time drug deal only the wife decides the new house would be happier without the husband Bridget! she's anxious to start spending the husband is entitled to half of whatever you buy with that cash for how long well as long as it takes to finalize a divorce called three times since he got the paperwork something about a loan shark and his thumb the hundred grand that we borrowed is 150 now and he wants it i'll pay off the shark give me a divorce we'll be She's in cow country. The first seduction was fast. You have your own place? Yes. You have indoor plumbing? Yes, I have indoor plumbing, I have electricity, and I have a name. No names. It was easy. You're different than the others, Mike. I feel like, well, maybe I could love you. But the last seduction. What type of list are we trying to make? Cheating husband list. Was murder. This guy in New York. 10 million payoff to the widow if he dies of an unnatural death. She's willing to give us a third. You're talking about murder. You, me, three million bucks. The only loser in the whole deal is a wife-beating old bastard. You're crazy. I'm out of here, Mike. You have a way of making a woman feel like a one-way train ticket. I'll do it. I'll kill the bastard. You're up for this, right? If you find her, I'll be glad to separate her from the cash. She's here. She's in New York. Let's go for a little drive. Where does this end with you? What the hell are you doing? Linda Fiorentino, Peter Berg, and Bill Pullman in a film by John Dahl, The Last Seduction.
I, I really liked dark comedy and I like film noir. And in 1994, 1994 was a crowded, crowded year for movies. That was a year of Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump and Shawshank. Oh, wow. In an upcoming show, I'm going to be actually re- revisiting the five best picture nominees of, uh, of that year. Oh, cool. and, but the, the story was in this movie called The Last Seduction, which is a star vehicle for a woman named Linda Fiorentino. A lot of people thought she should have been up for best actress. This was, went against Academy rules. They actually showed this movie on television first and okay. then it got a theatrical release later. And that disqualified it from Oscar contention. Oh, no. And it, I think it did okay, like Independent Spirit Awards and a couple of things like that. But as a result of that, it's as far as Academy history, zero nominations but I I think if they had gone straight to theater with it but apparently it was a movie the the people behind it were looking for kind of like one of these mid-90s lack of a better term skinomax films which were like these kind of these sex crime movies Mm -hmm. Uh, they just thought it was it was that in fact they they weren't happy with some of the dailies because they were like are are you trying to make this movie artistic we don't want an artistic movie here and it, it turned out to be Quite art- artistic in, in many ways. So uh, Linda Fiorentino plays Bridget Gregory. There's a lot going for her. She's a very beautiful woman. She's super intelligent, as we discover. Mm-hmm. She's married to a, a doctor. He's kind of a corrupt doctor, played by Bill Pullman. Again, Bill Pullman was in a lot more movies in the 90s. One of the more famous ones is he's uh, Meg Ryan's uh, boyfriend, who is not Tom Hanks, in Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, the guy she leaves at the top of the tower on Valentine's yeah. Day. What a Breakup. Yeah. yeah, and very nice guy in that movie. Not such a nice guy in this one, no. Opposite, yeah. Which I liked kind of around the same time. This is basically maybe a year and some since that performance to show the range. Of, the, Bill Pullman has more range than I think he was given credit for. So, hmm. But this all this isn't enough for her. Uh, she persuades him to sell some medicinal cocaine to some drug dealers. Then he gets beat up, essentially, um, but gets his money. It's almost a million dollars. And then she takes off with it. And then she goes undercover into this this small town. Then her husband, Clay, pays off a loan shark who's going to basically kill him if he doesn't come up with the money. And so this million dollars was supposed to be paying off this loan shark. And then he keeps sending these detectives after her to try to get this money back. Bridget in this small town meets this guy named Mike Swale. Mike Swale is played by Peter Berg, who was also a, a film director. And he's a very, very naive local man who's yep beauty and the fact that she's not from the town like she has more of a big thing so he's more interested in you know getting out of his town and she's very direct as well with him which like she's kind of like leave me alone and he just keeps following her so Mm -hmm. she's feisty theme in these movies that we have these men who are you know women are saying stay away from me and they keep they don't take no for an answer yeah Yeah. feels very 90s yep but Instead of, you know, the man kind of controlling the plot, she devises a very elaborate diabolical scheme to get rid of Clay, her husband, once and for all, using this naive young man. So over the top. I loved it. It is dark. It may not be for everyone, but what did you think of The Last Deduction? Oh, I really liked it. I love the ending, too. I mean, can we spoil it? Yes, but I will. I will 
heavily, heavily say that I think one of the pleasures of this film, at least the first time I saw it, was going on the journey. And it's not expected. Like all of the stuff that happened. No, all very unexpected. I don't, I don't think you can plot it out. So this is my warning. If, if you haven't seen The Last Seduction, pause it, find some way to see The Last Seduction, and then continue listening to this review. Because I, I do think this is one kind of like some of, you know, these great mystery films, but this is one mm. that a lot of people have seen, so that's why I'm a bit more hesitant. But yeah, the 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 ending. The ending. She just gets away with it. Are you kidding me? That's yeah, the best. Yeah. Just scot free. She's and that never happens, particularly in movies. Right? In the 90s. There'd be some sort of a a moral at the end of the story. Don't don't do this. But yeah, there were there was the odd crime film where kind of our our anti-hero is able to uh, get away with it. And in fact, mm -hmm. we kind of celebrate that and we cheer on totally. these bad happenings. Like the 90s were filled with this. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's me in some ways. Like sometimes I'll, I'll be reviewing a movie with somebody and they point out, but should we be cheering for this person? But my argument with The Last Seduction is if it was a male who was doing the exact same things, I think we would be going, yeah, good for him. Got away yeah, for with Sure. Oh, a hundred percent. And I, I think this was this was a great reversal here. And all along, we're thinking like there are points when she is going to get caught, like where where she she is screwed. Yeah. And she's so smart, she's able to still find a way out so of it. So good. Everything that she does, she has thought about it. She's so many steps ahead of everybody in the film. Uh, it, mm -hmm. it, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to watch. You know. So I, I I watched this one after the, I don't know if you know the TV show Snapped. <laughs> this is I like weird things. I'm all about uh, the murder podcasts and murder shows and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Snapped is just a show. It's just, it shows like police interviews and the fake reenactments of uh, people that snap, right? So murders that happen when people snap. Seemingly nice people that do terrible things. Uh, and it was a special for a week on women murderers, women who snapped. So I'd watched so many of these female crime shows for a whole week. And then I watched this to end the week and it was perfect. Oh, perfect. It was so funny. Yeah. Very fitting. Yeah, timing was... Right. She was smarter than all of them. They all got caught. Yeah. Which, <laughs> she was which a black be, widow. Black widows for sure. Yeah. Like it should be obvious for those writing plays, television shows, movies that women on the whole are smarter than men. It does seem to be the case. <laughs> but so few films, TV shows, plays show women as being smarter than the male characters. And when yeah. and again, this this one is and again, Heaven and Earth was was female characters led things. Same in Cookie's Fortune. The, the one thing though is that these are movies that are directed by men. I guess Anne Rapp, a female, wrote Cookie's Fortune, but on the whole, men are involved with with these films. And now I think the push is to have female directors telling stories like this. Yeah, uh, female writers and directors, which which would be great. But I again, I, I'm, I'm for the '90s. I'm going to be happy that uh, that we were able to get a few of these. And maybe it was because I, I grew up with these movies in the nineties that I wasn't starting to spot the problem that got addressed a few, a few years ago. But it's hard in, to notice until you really have it pointed out. I, I think there was a little bit of a push in the early nineties and that direction wasn't quite to the me, me too movement type of level. And and so I think in the nineties, they were aware of it. It wasn't happening as much as it should have, but there was a little bit more awareness. And I think for about 15 years or so, maybe more than that afterwards, it got ignored again, kind of yeah. uh, the 1980s mentality kind of came into the first decade of this century. 
the filmmaking, and I think it became a bit more misogynistic again. And yeah. we're again trying to get back to uh, where where it should be here. So, flaws with this movie. I mean, I can't recommend it to everyone. There's a shit ton of sex. There's lots of sex. There's yeah, a lot of sex, everybody. And that was the intention. It was supposed to be this yeah. this like watch at midnight on a Saturday night or weekend, like. It was the stuff yeah. that was just HBO or like uh, showcasing Canada, Showtime, you know, like these these net networks that would, would put these sex movies on. And that's what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be some dumb thriller, but it was way, way, way more intelligent. Way better than that. Yeah. But, but there is a fair amount. I, I guess um, in, in reading about this, Linda Fiorentino, they, they gave her the option of having a body double for the sex scenes. But she said, no, she she would do them like she was. Cool. I don't know how much I don't yeah. really know. Like she, she's another one. I kind of like, she got a bit more work than uh heap T Lee did after heaven and earth, but where she had this big movie and then she appeared in a few other things, but her career kind of fizzled off too. I also think it's too bad is these kind of one-off great performances. Yeah. Cause she was really good. Yeah. I mean, the last thing I remember seeing her in is uh this really strange Gary Shandling film and it wasn't much of a role. Like she was kind of playing a, a quasi version of this type of character which I think she kind of got stuck playing some version of this character for the rest of her career, but okay. ne never in as intelligent a way. Within uh, a movie that's considered quite bad, I'd like to revisit it actually to see if it's as bad as it was supposed to be. <laughs> All yeah. Jay, um, in uh, 1995, same people made Showgirls. They had Showgirls and Jade in the same year, and they both movies ended up among like on the worst films list. And this okay. and this, and this crime film that she ended up in as a follow up to this. So I don't know if that hurt her career. A couple things that I I had down is I I think again taking a look at I don't and I've been wrestling this a lot with projecting 2020 onto a movie from the 90s, the 80s, that kind of thing. There is again spoilers in here, but there is a, a little bit of a thing involving a transgender person that I don't. Oh yeah, very It's it's kind of they did not handle transgender a transgender woman very well at all. No, they, they almost they they use it as a mocking point, which is unfortunate. In a plot device, yeah, I think it does. It works well as showing the nastiness of the Fiorentino character, but I. And I, I guess like the thing that was progressive for the time, believe it or not, is to actually have a transgender character in a movie. Yep. Period. You know, just to know gender people. But this was handled in kind of um not in a great way. I, I think this was coming off of the heels of a movie called The Crying Game, which had a major secret involving a, a transgender character. And that movie handles that character and and everything about it way better. And I think this was just, you know, a couple of years after it, it's like, oh, let's throw this in. Just okay. the invoke thing to do. It, it is used. It is important in the plot, I would say, but I just don't think it was handled all that well. You know, Bill Pullman, as I said, I like to see him in a darker role. There's points where he's a bit over the top. That sequence where he's trying to trace her phone number. Yeah, that I, was I super he played over it the big, top. Like, like if we saw him maybe again just moments before this, like he's snorting some of that medicinal coke, then it would make sense that he's all amped up and he's all coked up for that theme. Yeah, that that work. But they, I guess this was fine. This would make sense. They did also like kind of play on some small town racist tropes. Like uh, there's that yeah theme. the you know the private eye buddy of Bill Pullman's is Bill Nunn who's uh, he's a black man he comes and he's looking for Linda Fiorentino and she shows up at this she's kind of conned her way into this uh, into this job and the person at the front desk says there was a man looking for you he's black or something a like black that. man 
man was looking for you just to emphasize, yeah, yeah we're in small town America here. Yep. Thought that was just a little bit too on the nose, perhaps. It's just, uh, yeah. In 2020, it felt fittingly uncomfortable. Another, again, I'm really getting into picky territory here, but I feel with six, like six really good movies like this, and I think we're all, we're going to be giving thumbs up to everything here. I think we just need to do this. There's a there's a car accident sequence that happens partway through the film. Again, I don't know yeah. about it, but it's quite graphic too. It's, it's it is, yeah. But what's not so well done about it is, you know, um, Ferentino's character survives this car crash really unscathed. I mean, totally I know fine. I've actually been in a car accident where the airbag was deployed, like it is here, and it leaves marks. It does leave something. So she she looks she, like she's for the runway, like two days later. I mean, yeah, she's, she'd be bruised or something. Yeah, they, I I just think there, there could have been something there. Yeah, Not, yeah. It's a devious um, plot, though, man. That's good. That's a good and, move. And the other thing is, again, I, I, as I said in the last review, I, I love seeing JT Walsh in movies. I think if JT Walsh agrees to be in my movie, I'm going to give him a lot more to do. This was a one-day performance. And most, oh, wow. of, most of what he did, he had one scene with Fiorentino, and then most of it was, was him on the phone. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to. Apparently, he was supposed to appear towards the end, but it would have been kind of a convoluted type of thing. I, I would have liked to see more from that character. He basically is a corrupt lawyer, and that's, that's all we get from him. Yeah. Played by a super talented actor. Um, on my friend, uh, a good time to mention Rank and Review, my friend Larry's podcast, Rank and Review. I recently was on that show talking about movies involving cults. And we reviewed a Kevin Smith movie called Red State, where there's this comedic actor named Kevin Pollack. Spoilers for that movie, but. He's, he's in the movie for like 30 seconds and is given pretty much nothing to do. And I, I, I just said, I don't understand that. What a waste. You know, I, I think there was a point to be made somehow there. Uh, this one, I think maybe, uh, I don't, maybe they, maybe it was a financial thing or something they could afford to give him. Just a few lines. One day, but uh, I, I just would like to see more from him. But that's that's really picky points here. I, I, I do like The Last Seduction. I think if you like film noir, like modern, like not black and white 1940s film noir, and you want to see just a tour de force performance by Linda Fiorentino, please uh, check this one out. Buddy Young Jr. had everything it takes to become America's favorite funny man. You were strong tonight. I know. I killed him. I murdered him. It wasn't even fair. A class act. You know, every night when you when you bring the fat lady up from the audience and you ram her in the ass with your head. Yeah. You're doing it wrong. Now. Perfect timing. Hey, lucky. And a family that fed him his funniest gags. My family was like uh, dances with juice. All he had eats with his hands, spits when he talks, makes noise when he bends. Everybody loved him. Except this guy right over here. Look at this guy. This is what happens when cousins marry. Your father. Did you like him? I loved him. Oh, she's cute. Wow. I just can't imagine standing up there in front of all those strange people. It's the best feeling in the world. Today, he's as funny as he ever was. You just don't lose it when you got it like that. You still combing your hair with the Exxon Valdez? <laughs> Who was that? You could do an interviewing the basketball players after the game, you know, in the locker room. You go, hey, you played a great game. Really, and not only that, you're a very impressive young man. 
But a funny thing happened on the way to the top. You're a legend. You're a giant. You're the comics comic. Look, I'm not looking for a little neck. Good, because he's dead. Buddy Young Jr. got stuck in the middle. All right? You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. I, I really, really appreciate uh, comedians. And I don't know if it's just the age I was at and watching the Academy Awards and watching that was the heyday of Billy Crystal. To me, Billy Crystal was the best host of the Academy Awards in my time. I, I would always hear about Bob Hope. And that was, again, he stopped hosting before I was kind of aware to watch it. But Billy Crystal kind of took Bob Hope's place there. And I, I just... I just love watching Billy Crystal movies. He was on a hot streak. He had like When Harry Met Sally and City Slickers. And he decided to write and, and produce and direct this movie, Mr. Saturday Night, which is about an older comedian who has kind of watched his time pass by. And then we kind of see when he was in the prime of his life, what a miserable person he was and all the things that have kind of led him to this place and, and in this time. And it's... It's a fun, like I, I laughed when I saw it in theaters. I laugh a bit now, even though there's some really, really sad stuff in here. So I would call it a dramedy. It was that yeah. year where I, I learned the term dramedy, a combination of drama and comedy. So you said Cookie's Fortune was the funniest movie for you. Yeah. I laugh out loud when I first saw it. I, I might have said Mr. Saturday Night, but I get very focused on kind of in the funny scenes that there's, that there's a sadness behind it too. There is, um, yeah. yeah. I agree. And he's but, just kind of a dick. So you don't like, you know, I don't totally, I didn't root for him. That's what I wondered about this time that the danger It's like, I root for Billy Crystal, but maybe the characters playing Buddy Young Jr. You don't root for quite as much. I think yeah. what was great about it in some ways is that Billy Crystal was such a likable guy. He was able yeah, to he's so a less warm. Like mm -hmm. I think maybe the only movie I can think of where he isn't that likable. I think each comedian has kind of that lighter and that darker side to them. And I think totally. Crystal has that kind of humor and that in there, but he just, his image has never allowed him to express it. So he's able to express it through the, like this old insult comedian, Buddy Young Jr. So we, we take a look at his life. He's now basically all he can book is, is doing comedy shows in nursing homes, which he's not happy about and becomes very nasty about it. And a lot of people are kind of encouraging him to maybe retire. And he, he doesn't want to, like, he needs to be a comedian. He needs to work in show business. But his type of comedy now has, you know, in the 1990s is, is, is done. And with this, the major subplot is about brotherhood. His manager throughout his career is his brother, played by David Pamer, who did get an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor, Good. actor that year. He is um, fantastic in this. I loved him. He takes, he takes Buddy's abuse through his entire life and basically sacrifices his life. His whole Buddy. life, yeah. And that continues into the present. And when he says to Buddy, I, I need to retire, I want to spend more time with my grandkids, Buddy is so nasty about it. And he then, takes it as an offense to yeah, him. he does. Why is it about you, Buddy? It's not about you right now. And then he tries, you know, Buddy tries to find new representation. He goes to see like the hotshot agent for comedians played by Jerry Orbach in a one scene role. Jerry Orbach, great theater actor. He was a voice in Beauty and the Beast. He was on Law and Order. What? Who is he in Beauty and the Beast? Uh, he plays um, uh, the, the Candlestick, like our Be Our Guest was his song. No way. He's yeah. Lumiere? <gasps> oh my yeah, God. I just like yeah. mostly know him as the dad from Dirty Dancing. Yes, he's the dad in Dirty Dancing. <laughs> yeah, that's how, that's my he, number one. There's a theater in New York that I've been to that's that's named after him as well. Oh, uh, cool. yeah, yeah, he like not 
young, young, but he died. I, I think he still could have done some more work. He died relatively young. He was great yeah. in a lot of Woody Allen movies as well. And so one scene role where he uh, plays his top agent who says all the right things and really makes Buddy feel important again, only to pawn him off on this younger uh, agent played by Helen Hunt. This is before Helen Hunt was known oh. for Mad About You. And then later she she won an Oscar for As Good As It Gets, partnered up with Jack Nicholson. And just a, a great some great characters in there. But Buddy still continues to screw things up. Even when he's get presented with these golden opportunities, it's, it's tough to watch. Also, his treatment of his family, like he, he has he has a daughter who has gone through drug treatment and some divorces, and, and still he's he's very, very nasty to her. Like the two just don't get along. And you see the kernel of that early on in the film when she's his daughter- She's a little girl. She's watching Buddy on his TV show, his network TV show, and he's doing his opening monologue. And he says, and my daughter, she- She's not very bright and like tells this joke while she's watching and, and her mother's like trying to say. Has to reassure her that that's joke. not her. Your daddy doesn't actually think you're stupid. Yeah, it's a joke, just a joke. Like it starts yeah. off, makes makes this joke about uh, my wife and I had a fight last night, not too bad. Three cops showed up or something like that. And yeah. the daughter goes, is that true, mom? No, it's just a joke. And she's keeping it light. When she starts, he starts insulting the daughter, then it's harder for her to say, it's just a joke. It's just a joke. And yeah. we like why then that relationship is strained because that um, is something i've always wondered when you watch stand-up comics and they do make jokes about their family and their kids do. how do you how would they take it you know how how much is a joke yeah how far is too far that you can well, cross the line I, I mean, I think like Billy Crystal himself has had quite a successful marriage, as I understand it. But if you take a look at the track record for some of the famous, most famous comedians, their relationships don't last that long. And I think yeah. there, there is some sort of, uh, because there's a little bit of insecurity, a little bit of a darkness connected to stand-up co comedy, which Billy yeah. Crystal does very well in this film. We've seen some shows, TV shows that do this really well. Curb Your Enthusiasm. Louie, even though he's kind of one of these guys now that can't get work because of the Me Too movement, but with a TV show about that as well, we, he would get his material. And, and we, we kind of would see that there's a seriousness and a darkness to it at the same time as some things are very funny. But I think that mm -hmm. goes back to the home life. And we, we certainly see that here. His wife's a saint in the film like she oh my put, god she's uh, the best yeah julie warner who i this is this seems like a theme of the 90s too these these great young female actors i, I she's really good in the film and i i saw her in a few things i always thought she would have a kind of a long-lasting career and it's another one like i don't know what the story is if she quit the business or what but yeah. I, I really really like her she was so funny and the positive energy that she brings She's like a Disney princess almost. She is just very yeah. lovely. She comes from privilege. You can see that she's when they first meet. She's yeah. you know, the Catskills or Hamptons or something. It was we're, we're buddies. Some vacation home. That sequence. There's so many sequences in here. I'd like to talk about the brother relationship. That's mm -hmm. one to focus on when David Paymer sees her in the audience at this show. And he's quite a talented painter as yeah, well. Yeah, very good. And he's sketching her. And you can tell like he's he's head over heels for this um, woman. Instantly in love. Yeah. <laughs> but he spots her 
in the audience. And then the backstage and he says, oh, and can you get that girl to come back here and, and see me? From table eight. He's trying to he's trying to fight, but he doesn't want to say what it is to his brother. And he basically sacrifices that chance to uh, to be with that girl. And you see early on there could have been a connection there. Like he there could have, yeah. And, and so that that all gets built up kind of in the third act when finally after Buddy has has blown this audition, a chance to get this a pretty good role in a film, and Pamer is staged as to be a support and skips his grandson's birthday party to do it when the two confront each other in a, a really, really great scene there. So I'm not ashamed to say that I got a little bit weepy. I was surprised. I've seen this movie a few times. It's been a few years. I got a little bit weepy in this film when Buddy is there with his mother. His mother was his biggest oh. fan. And when she's on her deathbed, like that was such such a tough sequence. And this was before, like we've actually lost some people in our family recently too, but this was actually before that, that I watched it. Mm -hmm. It brought back some stuff for me. So I, yeah, I got a little bit teary eyed with this one. So uh, maybe it was a little bit based on the music and like the usual conventions, but I I, I thought it was kind of an authentic thing. So Mm -hmm. I would have been right to the point because all all these movies are good this one's not perfect but it certainly gave me a little bit more of an emotional reaction than than the other one maybe the only other one that would be equivalent would be heaven and earth because of just yeah or in, in a completely different way but yeah this made me laugh made me cry and i think had really really solid performance another one where i thought billy crystal's acting maybe should have been given a bit of credit for it yeah, yeah, he did a great job. So, so what what do you have to say about Mister Saturday Night? I mean, it, like, I really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed them all. He had the least redemption. He still was a dick at the end of the movie, right? Like, he and the people in his life never really gained anything better from him. They didn't solve any of the issues. Like, he was still wasn't great to his wife all those years. Never apologized for it. He still didn't take ownership for any of his good deeds or his bad deeds. He just couldn't own up to anything. Like. When he gave money to his daughter, he still didn't say it was from him, which is weird. But I don't know. And I I kind of took that to be if he gives the money to his daughter, then it's like she would take it that he's trying to buy her love. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You're right. She wouldn't accept it. It's like, oh, all these horrible things you've said and done to me over the years. And now you're trying to give me a check. And that's going to make everything better. But his approach there, when we see the early scenes, like th- that's quite a touching scene, actually. Yeah. Uh, outside his his daughter's uh, apartment, where you, you you start to see a little bit more redemption. Like I'm, I'm not sure I can agree that he like he's still the comedian that he is, and he's not that's not going to change, and his style is not going to change. Mm-hmm. But you see the the baby steps towards becoming. A nice yeah, person. there's the baby steps. It just takes him so dang long. He accepts, you know, that crowd. Like early on, when we first see him, he's in the old folks' home, and then he makes this off-color remark about how old the people mm. are. <laughs> and instead, uh, at at the end, we're seeing him play the like, another old folks' home, but he's having more fun with them, and he's like yes. teasing the guy about his uh, really obvious toupee. But it's yeah. all really fun type of thing. He's not being nasty towards. His yeah, audience, that's true. he's that's accepted true. that a little bit more. And then, you know, it, it's not done in a overly sentimental way, but his his last scene with his brother. I think, yeah, I like that they didn't make it too over-the-top cheesy, the reconciliation. That was yeah. really nice. Because there, there is a danger that that could happen. Yeah. Because we see them we, we see them fight, and it looks like, okay, is their relationship done? Mm-hmm. Well, they love each other, and they're going to be there for each other, and it's just 
It's just he's he's trying to work his way into a point where he can, you know, apologize yeah. for how he's treated his brother all these years. And there there's a point in there, too. I mean, I, I do get his point that, you know, every chance that David Paymer's character had to take a risk, he chickened out. It's like, true, it, yeah. It's children, they were a comedy duel, and they were supposed mm-hmm. to do, like, this amateur show where they, you know, Buddy gets discovered. They were supposed to present together, but he gets nervous, and he backs away, and then he sees Buddy on the fly turn a double act into a solo act. And you also see why he became an insult comedian, because... I love that. He falls flat, and then this guy is mean to him and starts heckling him, and then he insults the guy's weight, and everybody laughs, and then he starts to win the audience over. He says, well, that's that's what I do if I run into trouble in, in an act. And and he, he kept that in. Unfortunately, he kept that into his personal life, too. But And then, <laughs> yeah, the, the chance to um, ask the girl out and to sort of say no to his brother. No, I, I'm interested in her. He doesn't do that. He backs away. Yeah. So there, there there's a point. But it did, when it's pointed out to him, it's, it's done in a really kind of mean way, I think. Mm-hmm. And this guy still got married and had, you know, children and grandchildren and a decent life, but so much of his life is controlled by his brother. So, yeah. So I, I'm again, uh, not, not surprised that we're both recommending Mr. Saturday night. I think I like it more than you do. I agree. Yeah. I think so too. You just couldn't get past what a miserable old guy, Buddy Young Jr. is. Yeah. I just I, didn't like him. And I, like, I liked the I, movie, but I didn't like the character, you know? I have a feeling that, you know, we have all these comedians that we really like and we can really appreciate. But if we actually met them, we might not enjoy being around them as much as we do watching their movies and shows and that kind of stuff. And watching them make fun of other people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we just might not like that. I mean, that's what surprised me about Dan Aykroyd. I, and your mom was behind me in line. Yeah, yeah it's so yeah. cute. That was so funny. And what... I had an idea. I thought he might be a bit of a jerk. He's the nicest guy in the world. And I've heard more stories since then about what a nice guy he is. But on a previous show, reviewing National Lampoon's Vacation, and my guest Larry from Rankin Review and I were, were talking about Chevy Chase. And and Larry thought I was under underselling what a monster Chevy Chase is. You will never, ever want to meet this man. Such a horrible person. Just watch his stuff and enjoy the comedy. And he is a very funny guy, but he is as a outside of that. Just, just terrible. I, that's what Crystal was trying to get at here. Yeah. Which so is all just really sweet, nice guys. He did do uh, a good job of that. I think it maybe didn't do as well because it was darker than, than people maybe wanted or expected from Billy Crystal at that time. For sure. It's not the typical Billy Crystal that he had been portraying before yeah. that. Mm-hmm. No. No. Fun, fun side note, Jerry Lewis has a bit of a cameo, famous comedian of uh, bygone era, uh, plays himself in the scene in the Friars Club, which is a, in, in New York, uh, uh, a club where, where comedians go and uh, they hang out and insult each other <laughs> all day. <laughs> uh, so good. I love yeah. a good insult comic. I think Crystal loves his history of comedy, was able to bring that all into a movie. That was, I'm sure, quite personal to him. And I, I know he was happy that David Tamer got an Oscar nomination, but I think he would have liked to see, you know, some other folks recognized uh, with that movie. And I, hmm. it, it was, a, again, 92 was a pretty good year for movies. It was a crowded year. And, and so I, I just would like more people to know about this movie and to check it out. Paramount Pictures presents Paul Newman. How about you and me go out there and get ourselves naked and then just see what happens? Okay. 60 years old, still getting crushes on other men's wives. I would hope by the time I'm your age, I'm a little smarter than that. Can't hurt to hope. Sure off to a slow start. In a movie you can count on. 
could legally shoot you and get away with it. To surprise you at every turn. Not unless I'm breaking an enter. Are you going to break an enter? <laughs> Does it ever bother you that you haven't done more with the life God gave you? Not often. Now and then. Nobody's fool. I just talked a lot about how big a fan I am of, of Paul Newman on the previous show. And Nobody's Fool was kind of like a resurgent for Newman. He wasn't he was getting work, but he wasn't getting a lot of work into the nineties. He did pretty well in the eighties. Uh, and then this kind of late in career and he had more late in the career performances. He worked solid up until his death really and the performance in uh, late in 1994 again entry nobody's cool got him a lot of attention including an oscar nomination it was also nominated for writing so it wasn't completely ignored but i think it's a movie that and a performance that hasn't been thought of in a while and this movie is a little bit harder to get one's hands on uh, i was a little bit nervous that you wouldn't be able to to uh, to get it but uh, it's, it's worked out well um he plays uh Pullman plays solly the rascally uh ne'er-do-well he's approaching retirement age and he keeps pushing this worker's compensation suit for getting a, a bad knee on a job and he secretly works for his arch nemesis a guy named carl who's played by uncredited oddly enough bruce willis he's um, uncredited in this movie yeah i mean everybody knows he's in it but there's yeah his name just doesn't appear in it at all interesting. weird thing that happens sometimes with some movies where it just wouldn't appear I, there was something to do with the marketing and the fact that he's action movie star that they didn't want to play on the fact that he's in the movie i, I don't quite understand that he likes a little baby bruce willis so he was so young oh my gosh yeah well and this was but this was still six years after die hard so he was yeah. an established uh he, he was in something like four movies in 1994 one of them being pulp fiction as well so okay. he was a busy guy that year so sully likes uh to flirt with carl's uh young young wife or younger than him toby played by melanie griffith and so his long forgotten son turns up in his life and his family have moved back to town and sully faces unfamiliar family responsibilities because he's really spent his life avoiding responsibility in many ways and meanwhile sully's land landlady's banker son is plotting to push him uh through a new development and evict sully from his mother's life and his mother played sadly in her last role by canadian jessica tandy uh very famous for driving miss daisy fried green tomatoes paul newman and jessica tandy were really into like tennessee williams in his heyday Je jessica tandy was originally blanche dubois in a streetcar named desire she was the only one from the original cast to not appear in the movie version and yeah so the, the two of them had known each other for many, many years, and uh, they, they have a nice dynamic in the film. Tandy's very good. Uh, again, everybody is, is good. There's some other very recognizable faces in here. Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, another guy who died too young. Oh my gosh, I couldn't believe it was him. I could not believe it was Philip Seymour Hoffman. I had yeah. to, I was looking at the IMDb, as I do, and saw his name, so I was trying to like watch for him, just did it went right over my head that it was him oh my gosh he's so cute and young very young he he would show up in a ton of movies he had a pretty prominent role in uh, i mentioned scent of a woman earlier and so he became just a face i would recognize and i was never quite sure about him and then he became a leading man and one of the most important actors of his generation and and so it's interesting to see him here he worked with paul newman a couple times kind of late uh they did some plays together and he appeared in a uh, hbo film uh kind of late in in paul newman's uh, career there called empire fall 
Falls. So it's nice to see him in the film. I think like overall the cast is good. The story is very, very quirky. It's based on a novel and that that works well. I guess, but I had such a fond memory of this movie, seeing it in theaters. It, it made me laugh, even though there were some really kind of sad and, and serious parts to it. One of like the, the serious angles in it is very much that Sully, Paul, Paul Newman, there's this house that he, he just can't let go of, and there's a lot of trauma connected to that house, and you get the sense that he, he was very, very much abused when he was a child. And that, that comes out in the film very effectively. And there's a bit of a message there about how that's affected generationally. He was he was an absentee father, and now he's seen, seen his son potentially losing his marriage as well by making some of the same mistakes that his father did. And it's just because of just not knowing how to be a father. So I think that, that that's a serious theme throughout. But we see all kinds of really kooky, interesting characters. There's the local bar. There's a lawyer who loses every case. Oh, I uh, love the one-legged lawyer. Like his character leads to kind of an interesting scene because all of a sudden, you know, Paul Newman, he's ter a terrible father, but he's coming into his own as a grandfather. Just a really cute, good grandpa, yeah. And he, he bonds with one of his grandchildren who's a little bit of a rascal, but who also is has zero confidence and doesn't want to face his fears. And and there's this this great moment where the grandson is forced to face this fear and 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 grows. I mean, it's it feels a little, little bit Pollyanna and watching it, it feels like a kind of a for your consideration moment in the yeah. film, but yeah. still works for the theme that they're working with. I liked it. I, I like seeing everybody. Some people were really down on Bruce Willis at this time. He plays, for lack of a better word, an asshole, and he's very he's good. He plays playing a great that. asshole. Yeah, he's super yeah. good in it. Like, he cheats on his wife, who's a, a sweetheart of a person. A bombshell, too. Yeah, and She's super nice and gorgeous. And it just it, it goes. It goes too far, and I, I kind of like that there's a point when she's not going to take it anymore. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. I mean, I don't know how you felt about you know, the flirtation and the, the would-be romance uh, between yeah. Paul Newman and Melanie Griffith in this film. If you felt that worked or if you felt that's a little bit like I this. I felt it worked. It didn't ever feel uncomfortable. And, like, you could always tell that they they built it up, that they had that relationship. They had that, that banter and that bond that they could kind of joke around like that and it never came off as crossing a line in my opinion but that might have just been in comparison to bruce willis's like piece of shit character yeah i guess well and that's how a lot of people felt about newman's character like he's not well liked in this town there's always no. people are, are upset at him and he he runs into them and and he's constantly trying to battle these people and mm -hmm. and yet those who actually know him get him and, and get why well, he's a good person and you tell like Jessica Tandy loves him because he's always there for her yeah. her son is there for her when it's convenient for him to be when he's going her. to gain something out of it and he almost resents that competition and that comparison that this yeah. this guy who's you know this trying to cheat the system is and he's this really well respected business man that mm -hmm. this is the guy that her mother will call very much a slice of life i just i i think this time what what i was having trouble with is how how cutesy everything is yeah a little yeah. bit I've seen a lot of these small town American nostalgia pieces. I mean, I think mm -hmm. captured well. It's supposed to be upstate New York, and I think they they do a nice job. 
I guess they shot on location. It was a really brutal winter. Uh, okay, yeah, it looks cold. We may be in store for a brutal winter. I they yeah. kind of used that made it a character in the film quite well. But yeah, I guess they were, they were battling uh, the conditions. I can see uh, that there's a lot of very cold looking breath. Really like the the stealing of the snowblower back and forth. That was my favorite trope. That, that's funny. So, like, power piece. Yeah, unnecessary but, for the plot, but very funny. But it was it was it kind of was a symbol of of the power struggle between Bruce Willis. Yeah. And and Paul Newman and and how uh, Paul Newman then recruits his son and other people to conspire to to help him screw over Bruce Willis. So yeah, uh, I think if you haven't seen this, you're a Paul Newman fan. I think you could probably there is some nudity in it. Yeah. Some of it is maybe quasi gratuitous as well. I mean, it's not the sex film that The Last Deduction is. Yeah, that I don't might know. There's no turn sex. some people off. No sex. No, it's just a couple of topless women. The strip poker game that happens and oh, right. uh, Melissa watches. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, just, fun. that's funny, though. It's just boobs. Yeah. So I, I guess I won't probably, you could, this would be a little bit closer to Cookie's Fortune as far as recommending yeah. it to a broader audience of people. Yeah. I, I, think, I think a lot of people will, will, will like this movie and appreciate it. I think Newman's great in it. Um, so good. I really, and I don't know, I, I'm just a sucker for Jessica Tandy, but I thought she was, she was just marvelous in her scenes. Mm. She's um, so cute. I just wanted to like go out and have a cup of tea with her. Because he wouldn't. The, the, the last scene's about perfect. Yeah. You know, that last scene and the, the fact that the last scene is with Jessica Tandy is is absolutely perfect. And then when, you know, before the credits roll, they say for Jessica Tandy and that one kind of gets me. I just... I, I I miss her and uh, I know her and her her longtime husband Hume Cronin. Uh, I remember the night she died. It was the Emmy Awards and they were both nominated for this TV movie. He ended up winning. She didn't win, but he he wasn't there because she had died that day. And uh, and and so this was obviously a few months after they finished uh, wrapping Nobody's Fool. So anyway, just a, a great. Not everybody gets a great final movie. I think Jessica Tandy got a great final movie, and I'm glad people started to uh, give Paul Newman more work after uh, 1994 because of this and he continued to give solid performances for for years after this check out nobody's fool he carried the boat he said what are you afraid of tell him it's none of his fucking business what tell him what i said ha detto di dire non sono cazzo suoi Fagli sapere che sta costando soldi agli amici e che sta fottendo il lavoro e tutta la mia operazione. You said to say that uh, you're costing him money and that uh, you're pissing on his whole operation. I want to... Zitto. He said to shut up. Perché non lo portiamo in un piccolo e lo picchiamo fino a che chiede la morte? He said why shouldn't he take you out in the alley and beat you until you beg for death? Questa è la questione. This is the question. Cazzo quando si tocca la mia esistenza e la mia gente sotto la mia protezione. When you fuck with his livelihood and the livelihood of the people under his protection. Ma perché non ammazzo questo? Why shouldn't he kill you? Ma se fosse nel posto mio, cosa faresti? He said if you were in his place, what would you do? Tell 
tell him he gives me a cup of coffee, I'll answer his questions. Oh, thank you so much for talking about these underrated movies. I thought there were there were kind of two things here with this that I thought might be a problem. One is me coming up with what I thought were underrated movies of the 90s. And if you didn't <laughs> like these movies, it could be quite a painful show for you to have to. Interesting podcast. <laughs> yeah. And the other one is, obviously, if I say that these are underrated movies from the 90s, I like all of these movies a lot. Mm-hmm. So as we move into the points thing, so it's, it's going to be tough to let go of one of these movies. But I have tried to prepare myself for this. And in this case, we have, in advance. we have a physical movie last time. It was yeah, a big movie. So, exciting. so uh, let's go straight into it here. How many points did you give Cookie's Fortune? Cookie's Fortune got eight points. I really went heavy on the ones that I liked. Okay. You'll see a big difference in points. Uh, 17. Hoffa. 13. The Last Seduction. I only got four. It did not fit my categories, apparently. <laughs> we'll have to talk about your categories after this. Um, totally. Uh, Mr. Saturday Night. Five. And Nobody's Fool. 13. So I think, yeah, you liked Nobody's Fool uh, maybe a little bit more than it came across in the review. So that's good. Yeah, I know. I, I was also surprised at that. Before I get my points, what was your criteria? Okay. Um, so lasting impression the movies that like would stick with me that made me think about them longest obviously heaven and earth got number one for that Duh, so good okay um acting slash storyline and then i think heaven, heaven and earth got number one for both of those cinematography slash just like general aesthetics yeah hoffa got that one i'm a big fan of Nice. That one, I liked it. And then recommendability. Okay, cool. Yeah, I love that. But last time you had a different criteria for the two Ghibli movies, so yeah. hopefully we'll have you on again, and then uh, maybe you'll come up with a brand new criteria. <laughs> I'm down. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Because I came up with the criteria after I watched them, so. Yeah, yeah that's actually Let's see how it goes. Maybe a good way to do it. So Because you weren't quite sure. It, it was more of a mixed bag of films here. It was uh, totally a mix of different types. We, we aren't really far off in many situations. Maybe there's one a little bit but i think uh, i don't think anybody's gonna get too mad at each other over this we had exactly the same for cookies fortune eight points oh, really right in the middle yeah exactly the same i gave i said i love heaven and earth i gave it 15 points though so i gave it a couple less than than you did funny because i was worried that you might not like that movie so it was so good i also gave hoffa 15 points i do acknowledge heaven and earth is a a better movie but i think they're, they're both pretty close the last seduction i was a little bit kinder to i gave it seven points it's one i actually gave quite a few more points initially and then when i finished watching all six i kind of reevaluated, and it, it went down a few a few notches there but yeah. still we're recommending all these movies mr saturday night i also gave seven points too i think I, I i know i liked it i liked it more than you did but you did get five points so we aren't too far off on that on that front and then no nobody's well, actually, I, I only gave eight points to. I thought going in that it was going to be a tough one between four of these for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, Nobody's Fool kind of, uh, that was one where I, I adjusted the points down. I was I was surprised, but yeah. uh, I still really, really like the movie as I like all of these. So points-wise, uh, the big winner, not surprisingly, you have it in Earth, 32 Surprise. points. Yay. Followed by Hoffa with 28 points. Third place, 21 points for Nobody's Fool. Cookie's Fortune was fourth. And then... Then in fifth place is Mr. Saturday Night with 12 points. And the movie that has to leave my movie collective is The Last Seduction with 11 points. That's a good one to give away, though, because that's a fun one. Yeah, it is. It is. That's a fun one to pick out who you're going to give it to. Yeah. So who who should I... You want me to give it away? Am I supposed to give it away to somebody specific or... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, give it to Kelsey Moser. She'd love it. She loves weird true crime and women and stuff. Okay. So give it to Kelsey Moser. Yeah. It's good. She has to watch it. 
Kelsey and I have a um, uh, a show in the uh, for future show. I have to connect with her. So I hope I can uh, convince you to do another one of these someday. Totally, yeah. I'll send you some ideas after this. But thanks yeah. for being on. Before I go, I just uh, want to do once again a shout out to Larry Parsons' podcast, Rank and Review. Please uh, check that one out. And uh, I'll, I'll let fans know when that cult episode uh, lands. Sometime, maybe it's in December or sometime around there. And I also want to do a shout out for Kurt Fitzpatrick's A Lifetime of Hallmark. Him and two other guys review in great detail a Hallmark or a Lifetime movie every single episode. I'm wow. supposed to appear on that show and we had it lined up, but the movie that I was supposed to review is not available in Canada to watch so oh, we're, no. we're gonna have to come up with a, a backup plan for another time so pick another terrible, terrible hallmark yeah. movie. good luck I actually got hallmark movie they're so interesting <laughs> well that's kind of the point of the show I think yeah oh, I love movie. it that's so awesome yeah they're just kind of laughing about the strange way people operate in those in those movies yeah so and so just uh please people uh just keep sharing the show recommending it if you can uh get onto itunes give me a five-star review or something like that just to make the show more available to people and listen to it on all of those wonderful services where you can listen to podcasts uh that would be much appreciated and as always just be safe during COVID 19 and be kind to one another as you go about your daily life uh, that's really important right now thanks again